Welcome to episode 185 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Saturday 31st of March 2018. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. And now, for a limited time, new customers to Jensen USA who are referred by the spokesman get 10% off one item. Simply enter the spokesman, no spaces, at checkout. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed of ByteBiz.com, and this is the second half of a two part special on what I'm calling Beaconization the placement of electronic devices on cyclists and pedestrians so they can be spotted by motorists with the appropriate monitoring equipment. These devices could be smartphone apps or they could be avalanche-style transponders. If you could be magically protected with the use of such a beacon, perhaps you'd be first in line to buy one. But as the previous show with historian Peter Norton discussed, there are ethical, financial and technological issues that also ought to be factored in by bike industry leaders who are talking about such tech with automotive officialdom. On today's show, I'll be discussing such concerns with a range of experts, and I ask whether we're being told that such technology is protective when, in fact, it could turn out to be restrictive. This isn't fanciful. One Chinese city recently rolled out face recognition technology that spots so-called jaywalkers and jaycyclists and sends them an instant fine by text message. Clearly, this is of benefit to mass motorisation, not active travel, and Western companies are working on similar technologies for deployment here and in the US. Fitting beacons to pedestrians and cyclists is sold to us as a measure that will save lives, but it could also be used to monitor and restrict us. BikeBiz has run a story on Trek's work with Tome Software, with the companies aiming to create an industry standard for bike beacons, and it's laudable that they are doing so. But might this technology be used against us in the future? It's a conversation we ought to be having. I've been aware of such technology since at least 2003, when I interviewed an inventor of a bike beacon at the Interbike Show in North America. The device only worked if motorists also bought the spotting equipment. Fast forward to today, and the technology has been used to try and reduce deaths of cyclists from being run over by trucks, especially in London. The cycle alert system consists of a tag or beacon that cyclists fitted to themselves or their bikes, and relied on trucking companies fitting the corresponding sensors to their fleet. A display unit in the driver's cab flashes when cyclists came near. Sounds great. But that's a lot of beeping and flashing of lights for truck drivers in the city of London, where cyclists are thick on the ground. And it's human nature that drivers soon tune out of such constant warnings. But what about in areas where there aren't so many cyclists? Wouldn't such technology then work, because the alerts would ping only sporadically and be more easily noticed? Perhaps. But you're then relying on trucking companies to fit these devices, and not all will. Trek and Tome 
are on a similar trajectory. Thing is, alerting drivers to the presence of cyclists is only part of the battle. Motorists choose whether or not to see cyclists today, but they tune out because we pose no danger to them. How is an electronic notification of a cyclist up ahead going to be meaningfully different to clocking the cyclist with eyes? It's pointless, really, unless, of course, the beacon automatically forced the motorist to give the cyclist room. Such cyclist and pedestrian avoidance technology is already being built into cars, so maybe we could be looking forward to a driverless future where no pedestrians or cyclists get killed on the roads. That assumes that cyclists and pedestrians will meekly stick to the periphery, when, in fact, it arms us with the power to stop autonomous vehicles in their tracks. Clearly, in downtown areas, driverless cars wouldn't be able to get far because pedestrians and cyclists wouldn't fear them and walk and cycle in front of them. The makers and buyers of driverless cars wouldn't allow that, so, in my opinion... A beaconised future may not be one of unalloyed freedom for cyclists and pedestrians, but the very opposite. But that's enough for me. What do my guests think? We'll be hearing from Roger Geffen of Cycling UK, Chris Starr of Australia, technology writer Max Glaskin, Canadian Lloyd Alter of Treehugger.com, and Casper Hughes of Stop Killing Cyclists. It's a long show. First up, here's Max Glaskin, who today specialises in cycling science, but who, in his previous role as a mainstream science reporter, rode in a driverless car before you and I probably knew they even existed. I have to hold my hands up and admit that I spent 10 years writing about the technologies in cars. Um, And then I suddenly realised I still don't like cars. So I stopped writing about technology of cars. I've spent... I, I guess about a decade write about, writing about technology of traffic and transport as well as all other kinds of technologies. So that, with my continued love of cycling, makes me very interested in the current debate that you sparked in Bike Biz and online and in the excellent podcast interview with Peter Norton, who's mm. just phenomenal, um, about your, what you're calling Beacon Gate. Yes, the, the beaconisation of the world, in effect. So everything is going to have to be chipped in mm. the near future, if that's the future that we uh, allow ourselves to be put into. So do you see technocrats taking over the world? Is this something that uh, will just happen? Nothing. We can discuss this today uh, until the cows come home, but it doesn't matter. This is all going to happen it's a done and dusted story. It's all very well having everything chipped and having the data, but sometimes it's just too much. You don't need to know where every fork in your cutlery drawer is exactly. You just need to know roughly where to get the forks from when you're laying the table. Uh, so uh, there, there will be there will be a limit as to what they find is useful data to collect and what isn't useful. So is so, it fair to say that the, the, the Geneva Motor Show, this connected car symposium uh, where the bike industry was fit under the table uh, sort of thing, uh, it, they aren't discussing uh, hard and fast standards yet. They're, they're just scoping it out, seeing what the future might be, 
And in that case, it's a, it's a very intelligent thing for the bike industry to be around that uh, while that discussion is taking place. It might be, as long as they aren't suckered into doing anything stupid. I suspect they're just trying to show uh, a beautiful face to the car industry to maybe get some some backing, some support, some finance, who knows, from the car sector because uh, the automotive industry is much more valuable and has got a lot more readies than the cycling industry. Uh, they want to show willing, maybe. Uh, they certainly don't they may want to be breaking down any perceived barriers that, you know, us and them between uh, the auto industry and cycling. Uh, but they have to be really cautious because loading responsibilities onto cyclists, who, as we know, are every cyclist is a saint, and uh, loading responsibilities onto them just doesn't seem right. You know, cycling's low tech, low cheap, um, benefits millions billions of people around the world who couldn't afford to have a car anyway um so it doesn't seem to me uh a good move so the motor industry the auto industries got enough technology and enough researchers to uh, benefit cyclists without cyclists having to carry the burden of um, a tag that reveals their whereabouts any one time of the day. So let's talk about those tags and, and using your your technology uh, hat. So, because, I, I, well, I've been guilty. I have, I have called it a beacon. Uh, yeah. Manuel Marcelio didn't like the word beacon. Absolutely, he really hated the fact I used beacon and he wanted that changed. So I changed in, in part to a sensor. And of course, it can also just be a smartphone app. So there are, there's nothing decided as yet. So it's not, we're not talking about a physical thing button, you know, mm. like a, an avalanche transponder that you, you have to put on your bike. There's a, there's a spectrum mm. of devices here. But are any of them connected? I'm using that as a, as a, as a pun as well as a, a way of bringing these things together. Are any of these things connected in technological terms, in, in maybe the, the, the wireless output that they, they, they throw out there? Yeah, well, first of all, going back to that, a, beacon, a sensor just senses things. A, a beacon broadcasts things. It's no good just having a sensor. Um, a tag can't just be a sensor if you're wanting to share information. It's got to be able to share that information, and that's what a beacon does. So um, arguments about uh, the naming may upset people, but it's more accurate to call it a beacon. Uh, a smartphone acts as a sensor and it can also act as a beacon because it can share that data. Uh, the, uh, the connectivity, the, the way that it shares it, the speed that it shares it, um, the delay in which it can share data uh, makes our current systems uh, not so effective. 4G is, pro is the fastest we've got at the moment. You might be lucky to get Wi-Fi or maybe even Bluetooth, depending on how close you are to that truck that's bearing down on you. Um, but 5G is on its way. It's already experiments with 5G, which will be faster. Um, almost no latency with sharing data, which means that data will be transmitted very quickly uh, between people or between objects, between these so-called Internet of Things. Uh, so, yeah, that's 
all possible. It's all out there at the moment. Uh, it's not what I think cyclists should be part of in collecting data about themselves and distributing it. I, again, I'm going back to the thing where it's got to be the automotive industry takes responsibility for the hazards that its products can generate. See, some cyclists, like me, perhaps you, uh, many others, certainly it sounds like uh, uh, we're on a very similar, uh, another uh, pun here, wavelength. Um, uh, but many cyclists might actually welcome this and say, well, hang on. You're talking about technology that can make me safe. Don't don't do it down. Let's have it. Bring it on. I'll chip everything if it keeps a truck away from me. But let's just say that that's that's the desire. Obviously, will it actually work? If if you had all this tech, will it keep cyclists safe? Um, <sighs> probably not. I would say from uh, the incident in Tempe last uh, last week. Uh, I would say the technology won't keep cyclists safe because of the uh, human error, techno technological error. But the cyclists who are saying that, yes, I will carry this technology um, to boost my uh, chances of staying safe, it's barking up the wrong tree. It's like calling for mandatory helmets when the thing we want is safer roads. Uh, the, the right thing is that technology goes into where technology already exists, which is the vehicles. And that technology is already there and it can help. It's just not being applied properly yet. Um, thinking of uh, the few vehicles, new vehicles around at the moment, which have technology on board to detect cyclists. Now, the argument is that it should be safety critical software or technology so that it stops the car from uh, impacting mm. uh, and does pre-braking effectively before the driver can. I think that that technology could be used less critically. I think it could be used to automatically reduce the speed of any vehicle in the area. If one vehicle with this technology detects a cyclist, it can communicate using any um, any of the many chips on board um, to other vehicles in the area. See, I like that. Uh, that, that sounds like a great concept. Uh, a, a cyclist slowing down the, the motorist. Behind. But what if you've got, like in London now, you've got a thousand cyclists going through these bridges. The cars can't go through anyway. So if you... <laughs> If you've got a thousand chipped cyclists and ten thousand chipped pedestrians, all of whom can slow down the the vehicles around them, the motor vehicles around them, well, clearly motor vehicles aren't going to be able to move in the future, and that's not something motor vehicle manufacturers and the automotive industry in general is ever going to allow. It's. I, I'm not sure they're not going to be able to move. I'm not saying they won't be able to move. They slow down and yeah keep moving uh auto industry yeah ain't ain't going to want anything that um dispels the, the vision of the open road and the pleasure of sheer driving uh which they managed to 
market successfully for at least 50 years or from what Peter Norton was saying since the 1920s. It's, yes, it's not an easy, it's not going to be an easy battle. But this is, but, I mean, see now I've, I've been describing so far maybe a dystopian future. What you're describing is is very much not a dystopian future. That sounds like a fantastic future. You're selling me on the whole technology now. It's a compromise. Just... In many in many ways, Carlton, the, if the driving becomes safer by the vehicles uh, knowing that there's a cyclist around the bend because it's heard from another car that the, there's a cyclist around the bend uh, and there's less chance of the vehicle then causing injury to that cyclist, the insurance premiums are going to go down. Now, okay, uh, for the driver, uh, and you, one would think. Now, this is yes, this is where I'm arguing against myself. It would be good then. Everybody would like it if their insurance pr- premiums go down. Uh, of course, the people who won't like it if insurance premiums go down is the insurance industry. <laughs> yes, uh, because I'm imagining. I don't know. Maybe there's somebody out there in the insurance in- sector who can tell me that their profits are related to the the value of the premiums that they they take in uh so there's got to be some uh uh some device some way some mechanism that it becomes more attractive for society to put this burden of safe safety on vehicles rather than on the humble cycle what did you think to uh, Peter Norton's idea, which was to have some sort of conference, some sort of conflab where user groups, cyclists, pedestrians, uh, anybody else interested in in just mobility away from motor cars, um, ethicists, philosophers, uh, industry types, just broadening it out so we can actually discuss this. So it shouldn't be up to technocrats. It should be we should be looking at this before it happens and it shouldn't be decided for us we should be looking at this very very closely sounds like a great idea i'd welcome that i would want it to start with from the premise of ownership of our activity uh and make sure that from the start it's underlined by the fact that we don't want technology imposed on us uh, because otherwise it will get to a point where people say oh right it's being discussed it now that means it's halfway to being accepted or halfway towards a point where it can be foisted upon cyclists i think it has to start from a point of we reject this so you can start a discussion or a debate just with the, the motion that cyclists reject the idea of being tagged or carrying beacons or so-called sensors um, from the start and uh, this house refuses ever to wear them and start from that point, I think. Uh, See, this, this now kicks in with my historical background and my expertise in... Uh, so Peter Norton's expertise was in pedestrians in the 1920s and 30s, and mine would be with cyclists in the 1920s and 30s, where very similar debates were had, as I'm sure you're aware, on like the right 
to the road and being forced to use bike paths. So, so they're, they're quite similar arguments mm. in that um, the powers that be in Britain described cyclists as uh, prima donnas, as you know, wanting everything and giving away nothing. And the cycling organisations uh, said, you know, you, you shouldn't take away our right to ride on the roads. Don't give us safety stuff. Uh, we're actually quite happy riding the, uh, the King's Highway. Mm. So that has been modified of late. So we, we now have, um, I would say, a, a general acceptance in modern society, in modern cycle advocacy circles, that bike paths, protected cycle lanes, are a good thing. Mm-hmm. So if that's, if that's the way we've evolved, uh, you know, in the past 90 years from, you know, we want the freedom of the road, we don't want anything to, to impinge on that, don't give us safety, we'll look after ourselves, to the complete opposite, in effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, might the same happen with technologies? Like, it sounds frightening to, to us moderns, but in 20 years' time, this will be a total non-argument. It's like, well, of course everybody has a chip put in their their head at birth why wouldn't you because of course you need to be scanned when you go in the supermarket and of course you need to be able to limit the car speeds around you this is just how did they ever have arguments against that well the news over the last week you shouldn't be having me sitting here you should be having carol cadwallader she would (laughs) point out that uh, how data can be abused and misused uh, to to affect entire the futures of entire countries, and uh, it, it's that uh, that misuse, potential abuse of information, which uh, should definitely be highlighted. Um, do I want my rights to be tracked? Um, I don't. Many people do on something called Strava. Yeah, people are doing it already, aren't they? So people are already yeah. giving away a lot of information anyway. Sure, they're giving it away. I'm not... Uh, I'm a bit too cautious also. I'm not very good at cycling. So <laughs> I don't want people to see how, how slowly I go hills and even downhills. But, um, it, yes, um, what is that data being used for? Uh, Strava's finding markets for it. Uh, markets that... Uh, you may or may not wish to have your data. Uh, safety is is crucial. It's yet again still the responsibility must lie with the sector that poses the danger. Mm-hmm. Cyclists don't pose dangers to other road users mostly in 99.99999% of the time. The other road users who pose the danger to cyclists, therefore they should carry the burden of, of whatever technology is needed to make all roads safe. Max, does that not trickle down to, you say 99.9%, but then there is a percentage where... And there have been some cases recently of, of cyclists killing pedestrians. So yeah. wouldn't pedestrian groups welcome the fact that cyclists could be chipped because that might make them slow down? The fact that chipping a cyclist and a cyclist that talks to a traffic light means cyclists can no longer run red lights because they'll be prevented somehow 
in the bikes of the future yes, from, yeah, from yeah. red lights. Yeah, so would pedestrians welcome the fact that cyclists are going to be chipped? Because it's, it's the pedestrians at the absolute bottom of the uh, the pecking order here. Yeah, so fine, yes. One, is it, I don't know the accident or, or, or killed and seriously injured figures for cyclists um, with pedestrians. One every four years, is it? One every two years? Mm-hmm. How to, uh, compared to the exposure rate is it's, it's roughly is, one a year okay and that that's a tragedy each one is a tragedy but if you're going to start using technology to attempt to eradicate those individual tragedies then you're giving up something the whole of society is giving up something as you say, every, every one of us is a pedestrian. So then every one of us has to carry some kind of tag mm. beacon mm. sensor. Every cyclist will then have to. And the amount of data that will be collected, pot- potentially open to abuse, how that data then is processed and uh, distributed, disseminated, you know, massive infrastructure needed for that alone. Um, I would say that the what you're giving up or what you're having to invest is not worth it. Okay. With with your technology journalist hat on, mm-hmm. um, do you think in general technology writers are welcoming this 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 kind of future, not this specific future, but this kind of future? And 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 not really looking at the downsides, or do you think there are many many uh, fine technology writers out there who are absolutely bristling with uh, articles uh, saying, "Whoa, this technology is scary. Do we really want it?" There is the odd article like that, but the nature of being a technology journalist is the future is exciting, um, the future is golden. Uh, I I was doing it for. 20, 25 years, and everything seemed like it was going to be wonderful. Uh, and I think that is still the case. You go in and people say, hey, I've got a new technology, and these are the applications, and this is what can do. And I was writing back in the early 90s about something called voice over internet protocol. <laughs> Never heard wow, of that. <laughs> that's amazing. Free phone calls yeah. around the world. Mm. Um, what are we talking on now? We're talking on Skype, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, hundreds of miles apart. And uh, these things do come come true. As you say, I saw the very first uh, systems that identified vehicles passing on the road just um, through I- image analysis uh, back in the uh, uh, mid-'80s. Um, and I thought, why Why does anybody want to use that? Why are you going to be able to walk and see whether that's a lorry gone past or a car gone past? Yeah, these they do. And But I thought, it's great. And you do get excited. You do get thrilled by the, by the buzz. As a journalist, you're always after something new. Mm. And technology mm. is always promising something new. So it feeds that excitement. So the technology journalists are not going to uh, be saying, this is bad. There are a few out there who are switched on and have time to think, don't have to turn around a news article. They've maybe got two or three months to come up with a piece, mm. um, something long form. Uh, I remember driving, going in the first 
self-driving car that I went in as, uh, when was that, 90, 95, 96, around the peripheric Paris. I was scared, witless. Um, but I, afterwards, I still thought, hang on, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I still wrote good stuff saying, yes, this is a future. So it, technology journalists get carried away with the excitement of something new, and technology always gives them something new. So it's just going to be positive stuff. So give us your, your best tomorrow's world. And for, for listeners in America, that was a, a program in, on the BBC in the 1970s, probably even the 1980s, uh, which discussed the coming technologies. Uh, so give us your best tomorrow's world type prediction of well, where you see this technology going uh, hmm. in, say, the next, well, one, five, ten years. Ah, well, the TV program Techno- uh, Tomorrow's World was famous for anything that appeared on it um, died the death <laughs> and never actually came to fruition. Nevertheless, my prediction, I, what can I say? It will, it will all depend on the wealth of nations. Nobody is going to invest in the infrastructure uh, to chip cyclists uh, and pedestrians um unless they've got a lot of money now there may be one or two countries out there who would go for that but who are wealthy enough and i was thinking maybe switzerland maybe one of the scandinavian countries but on the other hand those countries have got strong democratic processes in place structures in place so i can't see actually that cyclists and pedestrians and vulnerable, all vulnerable road users will be required to carry some kind of beacon um, and, and will otherwise be blamed or share some liability if something terrible happens to them. The automotive industry will show, as it has done over the last four or five years, that it can identify cyclists who are wearing beacons um, and it will do that for its own benefit to show that it's got this soft, warm, cuddly side of respecting cyclists because cyclists have got an image which motoring doesn't have and motoring wishes it did have of health, environment and all the good, warm things in life. Thanks to Max Glaskin there. Now, here's Chris Starr. She operates the 3CR cycling podcast from Melbourne, Australia. There was an article that was in Bike Biz that absolutely floored me when I read it a couple of days ago. And this came out on March 22nd. All cyclists will need to fit detection beacons, says Cycle Industry Boss. Bicycles will definitely have to communicate with other vehicles, says was it Combi's general manager. Now that just absolutely floored me when I when I read that because this is in uh, what can we say on the background of the what's been discussed in the last week or so to do with autonomous vehicles is the terrible incident that happened in Arizona where an Uber driver hit a woman who was walking a bike across the road at night and there's a lot more to that that's come out subsequently but I read this alongside 
the um, you know, the, that that news, and I'm just aghast. Are, are humans capable of? Uh, <laughs> How could I put it? Keeping abreast of um, technolo- technological change on our roads, especially in the cities where most of this sort of stuff will pertain to. We're constantly being told that autonomous vehicles are our future and they will be safer. And this is stuff is coming whether we want it or not. Now, uh, I think we would be in furious agreement if to say like um, people who drive vehicles already have enough uh, difficulty or uh, to deal with you know, the interactions between cyclists and pedestrians and wheeled pedestrians, whatever term you want to call it. Now we're bringing in this extra technological thing over the top. Cycling and and walking should be an equitable form of transport. Now we're moving things, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. And I will just like to bring in the point that I'm not anti-technology. I'm speaking to you to via the mo, um, medium of Skype. I'm looking at a desktop computer. I have two devices in front of me. I'm not anti-technology. I've got a few other things here I could throw into the mix. What we've got to be careful of is does our perception or our uh, judgment being over, you know, are, are we capable of dealing with these new technologies? And I really think not. I'm very thankful you wrote this article because I'm, I'm uh, again, it's absolutely hit me for six to use, a, um, you know, another analogy. And I could f- understand the sort of article you'd like to write, but hey, let's use their own words because, as you quite accurately pointed out, we need more ethical <sighs> input into these decisions. I mean, we're talking about these, the use of these beacons in contested areas like cities, and I really do not think they're fit for purpose. At you know, I cannot see five, ten years' time, whatever point they want to put on this technological development and whatever uh, systems they're going to use. I do not think uh, either technological perspective and/or psychologically we're adapted for it. Um, automobile. Oh, I start again. Autonomous vehicles do have their place, and it's not in cities if they're going to use them. Uh, you know, it's like everything's five kilometres away. Uh, but no, this this is, is absolutely fraught, and I'm um, I'm pleased, uh, Carlton, you made the time today to have a chat about this because it is it's just so many landmines in this. I mean, I could just bring in all these clumsy analogies, but it's just something that is just. Um, absolutely terrifying. We, as, as cyclists or as in people who like to choose to ride bikes, we have difficulty enough getting proper stri- uh, strategy, uh, funded infrastructure, not just, you know, bike plans that uh, don't have any legacy and don't get funded. We have enough trouble with political will, let alone something like this just coming over the top of us and we don't have it, like you said, these other people have got skin in the game, they've got the money, cyclists and pedestrians end up being marginalised in horrific ways that I do not want to see in the future. Chris there of Yarrabike and 3CR Community Radio. Next up will be Lloyd Alter, Toronto-based journalist for treehogger.com. But first we'll go across to David for a commercial break. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And it's it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser. This is a long-time loyal advertiser. We're glad to have them back again, of course, in 2017. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. I've been telling you for years now, years 
that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices. And what really sets them apart, because of course there's lots of online retailers out there, but what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support. When you call and you've got a question about something, you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors. And these are cyclists. I've been there. I've seen it. These folks, this is something we'll talk about in today's show, but these are folks who, who ride their bikes to and from work. These are folks who ride at lunch, who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and, and so you know that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge of the products that you're calling about. Now, talking about great deals, it is time for Jensen USA's annual bike sale, their 2017 annual bike sale. If if you're looking for a new bike, whether it's a mountain bike, a road bike, a gravel bike, a fat bike, what are you looking for? Because now it's spring and the sun is shining and the birds are chirping and it's time to get back out on your bike. Check out Jensen USA's annual bike sale and you will not be disappointed they always have great deals on complete bikes i mean i'll I just give you an example i'm looking at their website a 2016 orbea occam tr m30 normally three thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars now just two thousand six hundred ninety nine dollars what are you waiting for it's a great bike from a great brand at a great price go ahead and check them out Jensen USA, they are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle. It's jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. We thank them so much for their support, and we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, let's get back to the show. Thanks, David. And now here's Treehugger's Lloyd Alter. When I first wrote about this kind of technology a couple of years ago, about four years ago, Volvo was proposing a helmet with a kind of radio transmitter that could talk to Volvo cars and let the cyclist know a car was coming and vice versa. And my concern at the time was all of these things work really well when you've got one or two cyclists and one or two cars. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you start getting the kind of numbers that you're going to see in a London bike lane or in a busy bike lane, suddenly there's a whole bunch of beacons going at once and you need a whole lot of technology to be able to separate one from the other. And the killer thing for me about them is that you either have to have 100% coverage or you might as well have none because unless you have 100% of everybody out there and every bike out there that's got a beacon on it, then you're going to kill the person who doesn't have one. So, you know, how do you get there? The only way you can get there to have 100% is say, okay, as of this particular date, you're not legal, you're not allowed to be on the road unless you have a beacon. And oh, yes, and you better make sure your beacon is always charged and always working and uh, because otherwise it won't see you either. A technology like this is almost guaranteed to fail because you're relying on you'll you'll come just like that person who was driving the self-driving car that killed the woman the other day he even though he was supposed to be driving he was looking down at his lap at his phone because he'd come to rely on the technology you can't rely on this kind of technology so marcel manuel marsilio uh, the the kanibi uh, boss this this all started from I've done a subsequent story where he's actually uh, clarified his point of view in that 
what was a grey area in his talk at the Geneva Motor Show, he's he's said you know, it's no longer a grey area in that uh, he and and the bike industry, he says he's speaking for the bike industry here, uh, are not in favour of compulsory use of beacons. But what you're saying is, in effect, you need compulsory use. If this technology is going to work, it's got to be an inoculation thing. It's got to be herd immunity. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm saying. You know, you can't, oh, isn't that extra? I've got a little extra beacon there. It's, I have fights all the time about campaigns to get pedestrians to dress up in reflective vests and all of the stuff that so much of this, or even just bicycle helmets, you know, someone can get crushed by a steamroller and they'll ask, was that person wearing a helmet? I have nothing against helmets. I wear them all the time. But as soon as you start saying that you're relying on something like that, it becomes an excuse for blaming the victim. Oh, that person got killed. He didn't have a working beacon on his bike or he didn't have a helmet in his head. So to clarify on, on the, the beacons part. So okay. the, 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 the beacons and I have kind of I have I have toughened up my article in that I've, I've, I've put a definition in there. So the beacons can be like a button, can be like an avalanche style a passive transponder, which which probably don't have to, to run out of batteries, or it can be a smartphone app. So if you read between the lines with what Manuel uh, has been saying, I think they are favoring, and certainly the Trek technology with, 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 with Tome Software is also basically a smartphone app. So presumably you're going out for a ride, you turn on your... your uh, your smartphone you hope it's got battery to last you uh, the whole day otherwise you're dead meat of course uh, right. you, you you switch on the smartphone you press the app and then magically you're you're safe so what what could be the downside to that well Again, magically, I don't believe you are safe. I don't believe that, first of all, when on a smartphone app, that they're ever going to be able to distinguish down to the granularity uh, to exactly where you are with that kind of detail. I mean, when you look at the accuracy of the GPS now that they've got in the phones, it's not accurate down to a couple of meters. Mm -hmm. It's accurate to, you know, it's a much larger area. And if it's not accurate down to a meter, what good is it? Mm -hmm. the the second thing i mean we're definitely going to see down the road uh i saw a system a few years that i wrote about that like every lamp post every mm -hmm. streets every street post is going to have a detector and they're going and everybody's smartphone is going to talk to every lamp post and at that point they'll really get again the granularity that they can the detail that they need but that's a ways down the road uh it's much more sophisticated than just having it's got to be more sophisticated than just having an app in your phone. Does this also not, and this is absolutely what's been pointed out on social media ad infinitum, does this not point out the, the, the incredible flaws in autonomous vehicles uh, if the technology requires beacons? I thought we were sold on the magic of these things in that they had lidar they had radar they've got cameras they've got all these wonderful well hang on we've now got to stick things onto lampposts well that's not quite as clever as we were told well this is this actually leads to my absolute biggest 
uh, objection to all of this stuff and that it's really jaywalking 2.0, you know, in America in the 20s, they had to invent jaywalking to push pedestrians and cyclists and everybody else off the road. I mean, you've written about this and roads were not meant for cars. I mean, uh, roads became places for cars. What I'm concerned is going to happen is, you know, in London, they've been taking down all those rails that separated cars uh, from pedestrians and made the intersections and the roads more pedestrian friendly. I'm concerned that all of those things are going to come back, that the rails are going to come back that the centers of cities are going to become like Hong Kong, where you've got grade separation for all the pedestrians, because that what they're going to find is that if they're going to make the roads safe for autonomous vehicles, they're going to have to remove the cyclists and the pedestrians from them. And that the only way that the system will work is if they're pretty much guaranteed that there is nothing for them to hit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everybody uses the elevator analogy. Oh, it's just like elevators. Elevators got automated, but elevators work because they've got their own dedicated right of way and they're the only car in it, the elevator car. Mm -hmm. That's the only reason that they could have been automated as early as they were. So I, I think that this technology is overhyped. And I think fundamentally, the way to deal with it is the way cycling advocates have been talking for the last couple of years, which is, we agree, bicycles shouldn't sail this. We want proper bicycle infrastructure. We want bicycle highways and bicycle lanes. And then we don't have to worry about beacons. See, Manuel says that. He says that's his dream. He actually wants autonomous vehicles, the lanes where autonomous vehicles go in, uh, to be relatively narrow, you know, the word squeeze the space because you don't need the space if, if it's an autonomous vehicle. And then lo and behold, you'll get loads of space for pedestrians and for cyclists. Do you think Manuel is is right to, to have that dream? And do you think that dream will come free, come, come, well, come true? Well, I think that that is the dream. You know, those of anyone who's looking for sort of proper bicycle infrastructure wants the car separate. And if they want to take another lane and make it for autonomous cars, that's possibly a great idea. I know that in cities, when I was last in London, I was speaking to an architect. Oh, I can't remember her name. Rachel Skinner. Uh, and she was they were big promoters of uh, autonomous cars, but they just admitted that at some point you reach a critical density where everybody can't be in their own box anymore. Mm -hmm. And so you're not going to see this happening in London and you're not going to see it happening in New York City, uh, where basically you're taking 50 cars that have drivers in them and you're replacing them with 50 cars that don't takes Mm -hmm. up the same amount of space. So at some point, the whole thing breaks down. I mean, in suburban America, in Phoenix, where that Uber car should not have hit that woman, it was like perfect driving conditions on a nice wide road. I mean, clearly the technology is not there yet. But I can see his vision of if they want to have autonomous cars in our own private lane, fine. Just keep them far away from us and don't depend on beacons. Mm-hmm. So the Bicycle Association of Great Britain is one of the industry organizations that is part of Kanibi. So Kanibi is like a European um, uh, collaboration of industry organizations. And then in itself is part of the World Bicycle Industries Association, which which covers all of the the industry associations in the world. So the Bicycle Association 
in today's story that I've done on Bite Biz, which is a follow-up to the first one, is talking about how they fully support uh, Manuel and they say uh, one of the reasons they support him is because of the enormous uh, effort he's put in to get uh, the bike industry's feet under the table with the IT and the automotive experts who are going to be doing this technology anyway. So at least cyclists, in effect, are there talking to the automotive and um, IT telecommunications industry. W- would that not be something that should be welcomed, that, that Manuel is there and he is talking uh, to, to these, these motordom interests? Well... I don't see the pedestrian, uh, the pedestrian groups, a lot of the supporters of walking, I don't see them trying to get under the table uh, in the tent with these people. They're just saying, no, your technology is not going to work. Your technology doesn't actually serve a need that anyone can really determine. I was just discussing this yesterday, how who benefits from this? The people who benefit from this are the people who now hire human beings to drive cars, uh, who uh, pay taxi drivers and who pay lorry drivers. They're the ones who really benefit. The suburban property developers are the ones who really benefit because now they can build sprawl and people won't mind commuting if they can have a martini while they're in their vehicle going home. I mean, when you, I actually look at the technology, I'm saying, why is everyone everywhere wanting to be in this tent. Maybe we have to step back and say, who benefits from this and why are we turning ourselves and our cities upside down to humor them? So would you advocate for all these trade organizations, the cycle trade organizations, not to be facilitating the automotive and the the, the telecommunications industry in, in doing this tech? Oh, I'm really of two minds of it. I really think that the uh, bicycle industry should be ally- uh, allying itself with the uh, pedestrian organizations and the the walking community and the non-motorized transport community to uh, to militate against giving up our roads and signing over our lives to all of this new technology. I think they're finding the wrong partners. Trihagas Lloyd Alter there. Of all the advocacy groups that you'd think would want to stop the killing of cyclists with the use of beacons, then it ought to be stop killing cyclists. So is that what the organisation's Casper Hughes thinks? I, I mean, I fundamentally disagree with the fact that it should be necessary for a start. It, it, is, um, it is basically covering up, I think, one of the the biggest negative points that autonomous vehicles currently and and for a long distance uh, into the future, as far as I can see, have, which is that they can't anticipate anything. They're absolutely fantastic at dealing with, um, or they certainly will be when they reach level five for automation, which is a long way away, I think, yeah. Um, they, but they they will be brilliant at dealing with um, with regulated behavior you know, regulated behavior that is what am i trying to say here <sighs> other vehicles they'll be fantastic at dealing with other vehicles mm. but who behave in a very predictable fashion mm. but uh, but they are absolutely useless at dealing with the unpredictable nature of many things you know as as i've seen written all over 
the internet and magazines and what have you, you know, people basically are unpredictable, whether they're in a car or outside a car. But that's and the- it, looks, it looks to me like what they're, what they're trying to say is because you're unpredictable, we can't deal with that. Therefore, you need a beacon. Exactly. So is that not the solution, though? So so we, we know the tech isn't perfect, uh, even though it's been uh, promoted to us as somehow dreamlike and perfect. So this particular uh, beacon technology gets around that and keeps cyclists safe. So that would be welcomed, one would think. Why? why, why um, I don't I'm really sh- No, It's not going to be welcomed at all. I mean, where, where do you stop with these beacons? Uh, where do you if if people push? I mean, they, this is all come about because a, a pedestrian was killed by uh, an Uber car. A self-driving Uber car with a driver who wasn't being remotely attentive to what was going on. The lidar wasn't on. I don't think certainly didn't pick up the the woman that was crossing the road. Um, but um, where what what else needs beacons then? You know, do you can't put beacons on kids. Uh, you can't put beacons on toddlers. Um, I think Christian Walmart referred to the uh, Holden problem, didn't he? Where where there's so many pedestrians on the side of the road, on the pavements that they, that they spill over onto the road. Um, and the, you know, the same happens in, in bank junction. So they did the sensible thing and, and eliminated the, the traffic basically apart from, apart from buses. Where, where do you stop putting beacons? What do you stop putting beacons on? If you're on, uh, you know, the Holborn problem is great. Uh, is a good example of what could happen in a city, but you could equally have the Dartmoor problem, which is, do you put beacons on sheep? Do you put beacons on cattle or horses, which are incredibly unpredictable flight animals and when a vehicle approaches them you have no idea what they're going to do absolutely none so would you put beacons on horses as well Mm. Mm. so if this technology which isn't that clever in that you know if it it requires beacons then it can't be incredibly clever uh, because that's that's relatively old technology so if that technology isn't as as ready for the road public road as as this suggests, should the bike industry be talking to the automotive and telecommunications industry in the way that uh, this story shows that the bike industry has been talking to them? Uh, they should, of course, we should be talking. Yeah, the bike industry should absolutely be talking to them and um, and perhaps pointing out that uh, transport strategies in cities shouldn't necessarily be um, uh, looking to incorporate autonomous vehicles just yet. I, you know, again, this, this, I think there's wider issues here, uh, certainly wider issues surrounding autonomous vehicles and, and whether they will work in cities is one of those possibly one of the bigger issues behind this mm. because of the unpredictable nature of, of people in cities so yes of course we should be talking the cycling industry should be talking to them but um but from a strategic point of view for planning in the future thanks to casper hughes who stopped killing cyclists and last but not least his long-time campaigner roger geffen of cycling uk we have this in the case of um uh lorries with with uh, sensor systems and uh, the, the, the first, manuf- first manufacturer was very keen on this idea of beacons, and they realized, then they realized they didn't need it, um, that it was perfectly possible to detect 
uh, cyclists and indeed pedestrians without needing the cyclists or the pedestrians to be carrying beacons. Um, so this is this is a te- this is a technology we don't need, and which would is, uh, be very harmful if if the onus of responsibility were to be placed on the cyclists and indeed pedestrians um, for making themselves uh, for making themselves avoidable. All that does is um, add to the barriers to getting on a bike or to even indeed to walking. Um, because you're expected to have a beacon, it then becomes your fault if the batteries run out. Um, it just displaces responsibility from the source of danger to the potential victim. Now, Cycling UK, over its very long, long history, has has been absolutely wanting to get feet under the table with the powers that be. Um, and clearly, Kanibi and the World Bicycle Industry Association want to do the same. And, and would it not be um, incredibly worthy for the furtherance of the interests of cycling to get feet under the table? So not only should Kanibi uh, be involved with uh, all of these connected car telecommunications companies and, and organizations shouldn't cycling user groups also get their feet under the table so might you then suggest right come on cycling uk we should be talking to these bodies too well uh yes i mean i we certainly should be having a dialogue uh, we would be very keen to have a dialogue what's been disconcerting is that the um a lot of investment has been going into these sort of technologies but neither government nor the motoring industry has been talking to us or to indeed to the, uh, to the pedestrian groups. So we haven't had any kind of reassurance of how uh, the future of how, how, um, can, uh, how uh, sort of autonomous or connected uh, vehicles are evolving, whether they are really learning to um, not only to detect cyclists and indeed pedestrians, but also to predict their movements. Um, We've, we've now already been hearing cases where um, cyclists, pedestrians have been killed by autonomous vehicles in, um, in, auto- in driverless mode, something we were being assured by the industry wasn't going to happen. Um, and so that's, that doesn't pre- prevent the use of this technology to begin on motorways, in, uh, you know, to start letting the technology evolve to the point where it really could potentially become safer than human human drivers in theory that potential is out there but it's probably a very long way off the progression towards that state will begin on motorways in places where there are no pedestrians or cyclists to be hit um and gradually as the technology evolves uh we we could get to the point where actually uh connected on, and autonomous vehicles replace human drivers altogether because they become safer but that is a very very long way off now we need a dialogue with the industry about the uh, about the progression towards that, but at the, at the from from where we're starting from, we really do not want to be sharing uh, the roads with vehicles that are starting to rely on automation rather than human intelligence to detect as well as not only to detect but also to predict where cyclists are about to go. And the same goes for pedestrians. We need to be assured this technology is safer than human drivers, not adding to the dangers of drivers effectively relying on the technology and then blaming the cyclist or pedestrian when someone gets hit. Roger, you said you welcome dialogue. Well, isn't that what Kanibi is doing? Kanibi is opening the dialogue, has got feet under the table, is talking to these these bodies. Do you not feel that uh, an industry organisation will have cyclists, user group, 
interests at heart? Um, I'm not going to comment particularly on, on Conibi's, uh statement. It strikes me as conceding that if they're saying that cyclists should have beacons, that seems to be striking a really point, um, conceding a really important point of principle right at the outset of the dialogue. Um, that's, that's not, that doesn't strike me as a good way to conduct the dialogue. Um, it is important that we have the dialogue. It's also important that we, um, we negotiate from a position of strength rather than conceding important points of principle right at the outset. Okay, let's, let's spin back the clock. You know where I'm going here. 1930s, um, the, 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 the dialogue at that time was the, the CTC, as, as was, um, feared that cyclists were going to be marginalised and thrown off the, the roads of Great Britain with these 1930s bike paths that, that were starting to, to come. And the people in your position at that time, uh, Stancer, well, mainly Stancer, in fact, um, uh, were very much opposed to what they thought was a transgression or potential transgression of their their rights to ride on the road. So do you see parallels uh, to the 1930s here with those kind of rights grab issues? I certainly see partial parallels. Um, as you say, the, 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 the fear that cycling was, was going to be marginalised, I think has largely been, largely been justified. Um, there is a, an entirely legitimate debate about whether the, the Cyclist Touring Club in the 1930s um, came up with the right solution, whether, whether it would have been better to say, well, actually, let's accept cycle tracks and make sure that they are well designed with good priority at junctions. Or, you know, that is what the Cyclist Touring Club said at the time. It talked about the, the need for any cycle tracks to be really good so that cyclists wouldn't be forced to use them. They would choose to use them because they were simply better. Now, I, at that point, this, the, the analogy with beacons breaks down because I cannot see how a beacon um, could provide uh, benefits for a cyclist if all it's doing is enabling the driver to displace responsibility and to be less attentive to cyclists, which is what we're already seeing with, with autonomous vehicles, is that drivers who start relying on, on autonomous vehicle technology themselves become less attentive. And I think that is an immediate risk. And at this stage, I cannot see an upside to having beacons. OK, here's an upside for you. So we've been talking dystopia. Here's utopia. So there's another way of looking at these beacons, these sensors, these, these smartphone apps, what the RFID chips, whatever, in that uh, there are some technologies out there. I mean, you could certainly do this is whether it will happen is if you chipped all of the bikes, if you chipped all of the pedestrians, uh, that could talk in a connected car future and it could actually slow the cars down. So this is one potential that, you know, your campaign to get 1.5 meters, all that kind of stuff. Well, that could be mandated in the chip. You actually make when when the motorists of the future come up behind a cyclist, they've got no choice in the matter. They are thrown across the road uh, very gently and they can't come. It's like a, 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 a force field. They can't hit pedestrians. They can't hit cyclists because we're all chipped. We're all got beacons and the cars aren't allowed anywhere near us. So is that not something that 
is actually a vision of the future that's quite nice? Well, um, the first point is that it would, for, for, that, to, for that to be uh, an appealing vision, every pedestrian as well as every cyclist would need to have a beacon. That beacon would need to work all of the time. Its batteries would need to never run out. Um, and in any case, even, even if you could imagine that scenario where, where, where everyone accepted using beacons and the, the responsibility for keeping the batteries up to date all the time, um, you would then create a situation where uh, pedestrians and cyclists would be where, where drivers would start to fear pedestrians and cyclists can swerve out at any moment, run out in the path of, of the vehicles because uh, because knowing that the vehicle is then going to um, to, to not hit you, at which point uh, there is that risk of of legislation that sort of t- against jaywalking uh, to keep the pedestrians and the cyclists out of the way. It just does seem to me that that is um, a much greater risk than any potential upside even if the pedestrian cyclists were all uh, able and willing to take on the responsibility of everyone having a chip and everyone keeping the batteries up to date. Clearly we're talking about a long, long time away for the fully autonomous cars, which, which you're describing mm. there. But the beacons thing is, 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 is pretty much there in that Trek is already working on this with, with Tome software and are already working on bond trader products, probably. They don't actually know whether it's going to be uh, chipped products or whether it's going to be you know, via a smartphone app yet. But they're working on industry standards for this technology. And if you could imagine uh, Cycling UK members who, I'm sure they're not all incredibly affluent, but they're probably more affluent than, than perhaps uh, average person on the street... They may want to say, well, if I've, if you know, if I can go out there and buy a Bontrager uh, hub thing, I can fit it to my bike, and that will instantly magically protect me. They're going to buy that technology. People are going to vote with their wallets on this. Do you not think? People might well vote for our, for their wallets, but we're we're uh, UK. We're not in the business of simply standing up for our members. We are a charity to promote cycling as a safe and normal activity for people of all ages and backgrounds. We're there to represent the would-be cyclists, the cyclists of the future, as well as the cyclists of the present. Um, it would be a serious barrier to safe cycling and indeed to safe walking if everybody who goes out on their streets, every every man, woman, child has to have a beacon to to use the public highways uh, by any means other than in a motor vehicle. Thanks to Roger and all of today's guests, Casper Hughes, Lloyd Alter, Chris Starr and Max Glaskin. You can find their respective websites on thespokesman.com, which is the-spokesman.com. This has been the second part of a two-part series on beaconisation. And I hope it's given you pause for thought on a subject that hasn't had anywhere near enough airtime yet. It's by airing the subject that we may be able to make beaconisation work for us rather than constrain us. Meanwhile, get out there and ride. <laughs>